And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, today's April 26th, and 16th day of the year. 249 days remain till the year's over with. The, uh, this is Administrative Professionals Day. Used to be called uh, Secretary's Day, but of course we're beyond that, you know. International Guide Dog Day, National Pretzel Day, Alien Day, Audubon Day, Confederate Heroes Day, which of course I know is not politically correct, and there'll be people marching and carrying on like something that ain't got good sense. Denim Day, Get Organized Day, Hug an Australian Day. International Chernobyl Disaster Remembrance Day, National AI Day, National Bookmobile Day, National Dissertation Day, National Gabriel Day, National Garage Day. Um, I don't know how the garages got uh, the political clout to get their own day, but they did. National Health Day. And I do. Richter Scale Day. Secretary's Day. Uh, also, Secretary's Day in Colombia. Stop Food Waste Day. World Burlesque Day. World Intellectual Property Day. And World Stationary Day. Whoever comes up with all these <coughs> days needs to find a real job, don't you know? Now, in 1336, Francesco Petrarca ascends Mount Ventoux. 1478, the Pazzi family attack on Lorenzo de' Medici kills his brother Giuliano during high mass in Florence Cathedral. 1564, playwright William Shakespeare is baptized in Stratford-upon-Avon in Warwickshire in England. His date of birth is said to be unknown, and frankly, there's question as to whether he really existed or not. There are those that say Francis Bacon wrote all the stories that are uh, attributed to Shakespeare. 1607, the Virginia Company colonists made landfall at Cape Henry. Two years later, my ancestors set foot on this continent. 1721, a massive earthquake devastates the Iranian city of Tabriz. 1777, Sybil Ludington, 16, rode 40 miles to alert American colonial forces to the approach of the British regular forces. 1794, Battle of Beaumont during the Flanders Campaign in the War of the First Coalition. 1802, Napoleon Bonaparte signs a general amnesty to allow all but 1,000 of the most notorious emigres of the French Revolution to come back to France. 1803, thousands of meteor fragments fall from the skies of Le Aguil in France. That convinces European scientists that meteors do exist. Uh, I remember reading that uh, one so-called great thinker insisted rocks couldn't fall from the sky because there were no rocks in the sky. 1805, First Barbary War. U.S. Marines captured Durney under the command of First Lieutenant Presley O'Banion. 1865, Union Cavalry Troopers corner and shoot dead John Wilkes Booth, assassin of President Abraham Lincoln in Virginia. 
At least that is the story. There is another story that he actually died of old age in either Texas or Missouri. I don't remember which. 1900. There's also a story that Lincoln did not die from being shot. He actually recovered. And rather than go through the national uproar of a divorce from Mary Todd Lincoln, uh, moved to, I think, Texas and started a new family. 1900, fire destroys Canadian cities of Ottawa and Hull, reducing them to ashes in 12 hours. 12,000 people are left without a home. 1903, Atletico Madrid Association Football Club is founded. 1915, World War I, Italy secretly signs the Treaty of London, pledging to support the Allied powers. 1916, Easter Rising, the Battle of Mount Street Bridge. 1920, Ice Hockey makes its Olympic debut at the Antwerp Games under center Frank Fredrickson, scoring seven goals in Canada's 12-1 drubbing of Sweden in the gold medal match. 1923, the Duke of York uh, weds Lady Elizabeth Balls Lynn at Westminster Abbey. I met her. Um, Very nice lady. Smiled a lot. Didn't say a great deal. Uh, 1925, Paul von Hindenburg defeats William uh, Wilhelm Marx in the second round of the German presidential election to become the first directly elected head of state of the Weimar Republic. 1933, the Gestapo, the official secret police of Nazi Germany, is established by Hermann Goering. Also in that same year, Nazi Germany issues the law against overcrowding in schools and universities, limiting the number of Jewish students able to attend public schools and universities. 1937, Spanish Civil War, Guernica, Spain, is bombed by the German Luftwaffe. 1942, uh, Mexico Colliery. Accident in Manchuco leaves a 1,549 Chinese miners dead. 1943, the Easter riots break out in Uppsala in Sweden. 1944, Georgios Papandreou becomes head of the Greek government in exile based in uh, Egypt. 1944, Heinrich Kreppi is captured by Allied commandos and occupied Crete. For those who are not familiar with him, he was a German career soldier who served in both World War I and World War II. While leading German forces in occupied Crete in April of 44, he was abducted by British SOE officers uh, Patrick Leigh Firmer and William Stanley Moss with the support of the Cretan resistance. He was actually the 13th child of a Lutheran pastor from Hanover. The... Um, They had actually set out to kidnap General Mueller, who um, he was known as the Butcher of Crete. Uh, however, General Mueller left the island before the plan could be executed, so it was decided to abduct Creppy instead. He was a uh, a general. I mean, we couldn't go abducting just anybody. It had to be a general. 1945, World War II, Battle of Botzen. Last successful German tank offensive of the war, and last noteworthy victory of the Weimark. Also in 45, Filipino troops of the 66th Infantry Regiment, Philippine Commonwealth Army, and the American troops of the 33rd and 37th Infantry Division liberate uh, 
the Guyo as they fight against the Japanese forces under General Tomoyuki Yamashita. 1954, Geneva Conference, an effort to restore peace in Indochina and Korea begins. Also on that same date in 54, the first clinical trials of Jonas Salk's polio vaccine began in Fairfax County, Virginia. Uh, 1956, the SS Ideal X, the world's first successful container ship, leaves Port Newark, New Jersey for Houston, Texas. 1958, final run of the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad's Royal Blue from Washington, D.C. to New York City after 68 years. It was the first U.S. passenger train to use electric locomotives. 1960, forced out by the April Revolution, President of South Korea, Singlin Rhee, resigns after 12 years of dictatorial rule. 1962, NASA's Ranger 4 spacecraft crashes into the moon. Also in 62, the British space program launches its first satellite to Ariel 1. 1963, in Libya, amendments to the Constitution transform Libya into one national unity. The Kingdom of Libya allows for female participation in elections. Nineteen sixty-four, Tanganyika and Zanzibar merged to form the United Republic of Tanzania. Nineteen sixty-six, magnitude five point one, Tashkent earthquake affects the largest city in Soviet Central Asia with a maximum MNSK intensity of seven, which was considered very strong. Tashkent was almost destroyed in fifteen hundred to two hundred or fifteen to two hundred are killed. They're not really sure how many. 1966, a new government is formed in the Republic of the Congo, led by Ambrose Numazilali. 1970, the convention establishing the World Industrial Property Organization goes into force. 1981, Dr. Michael Harrison, University of California, San Francisco Medical Center, performs the world's first human open fetal surgery. 1982, 57 people are killed by former police officer Wu Bum Khan in a shooting spree in South Gyeongsang Province in South Korea. 1986, the Chernobyl disaster occurs in the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. 1989, the deadliest known tornado strikes central Bangladesh, killing around 1,300 and injuring 12,000 more, and leaving as many as 80,000 homeless. 1989, People's Daily publishes the April 26th editorial, which inflames a, the nascent Tiananmen Square protest. 1991, 55 tornadoes break out in the central U.S. Before the outbreaks end, Andover, Kansas would record the year's only F-5 tornado. 1993, the Space Shuttle Columbia is launched on mission STS-55 to conduct experiments aboard the Space Lab module. 1994, China Airlines Flight 140 crashes at Nagoya Airport in Japan, killing 264 of the 271 people on board. 1994, South Africa begins its first multiracial election, which is won by Nelson Mandela's African National Congress. 2002, Robert Steinhauser kills 16 at Gutenberg Gymnasium in Erfurt, Germany, before dying of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. 2005, the Cedar Revolution. Under international pressure, Syria withdraws the last of its 14,000 troop military garrison in Lebanon, ending its 29-year military domination of that country. 2015, 
the Sultan Nazarbayev is re-elected president of Kazakhstan with 97.7% of the vote. Now, when it's that one-sided, you know there's been a little bit of, shall we say, uh, tinkering with the results. All righty. Well, we've been talking about... Um, the um, Nazi UFOs and you know a lot of things like that. You know, the UFO mystery is a complex matter. Many solutions have been suggested, each of which represent only a part of the total uh, answer. And then you've got all the, the little side um, areas of research, such as Men in Black, Now, Renato Vesco wrote a book called Interception Without Shooting. And he was rather well-known in the UFO world, and he claimed that flying saucers are conceived and built by English technicians deep in the woods of Canada. He said astonishing German scientific experiments immediately before and during World War II produced more than V-1 and V-2 rockets. And he claimed that if the war had lasted another year, they'd have given Hitler an enormous quantity of fantastic arms and aeronautical fuel. They were getting ready to mass-produce a lot of things, to include jets, which would have left us in the dust. But the plans eventually fell into the hands of the Allies. and You know, the Germans are <coughs> were developing something they called the Fleurball. Also translates as fireball. A circular flying machine propelled by the flat jet engine and aimed at interfering with the electronic devices on many planes and the, the Kugel Blitz, which means round lightning, the circular intercepting jet fighter. And according to Vesco, those plans, which were captured by the Allies, were sent to Britain and to Canada, where a, a secret base was built in the northern forest to uh, work on them. According to Gray Barker, German experiments were contained, uh, continued from base, this Base X, and the result was what we know as flying saucers. According to Vesco, these saucers are much superior to the traditional planes, and he claims Britain has spent enormous sums on undisclosed aeronautical experiments, and various prime ministers have approved expenditures without giving the slightest hint of what they were for. And uh, the U.S. Um, apparently has um, taken a back seat to, um, ah, you hear the peanut gallery tuning up. That's because today is a Wednesday, which is garbage day. And uh, my little friends object to our garbage being stolen by these uh, people. But uh, let me go see if I can restore some order here. You know, I've been doing a lot of research. I'm getting ready to write some new books. And one of them is about the German UFOs that I've talked about in the last couple of shows. 
Now, in, in addressing Germany and their part in World War II, we're told the death of Hitler is fairly cut and dry. According to the powers that be, on April 30th, 1945, Hitler uh, shot himself in his bunker in Berlin as Russian troops were seizing the city. And along with him, his recent bride, Eva Braun, um, met her fate by poisoning herself using cyanide. And immediately after the suicides, these, we're told these two bodies were wrapped in blankets and carried out of the bunker and put in the shell hole where Hitler's chauffeur, Eric Kempka, poured 140 liters of gasoline over the bodies and set them on fire. Now, my question to you is, at that point in time, where is he going to get 140 liters of gasoline? But that's another story. After the bodies smoldered and were destroyed, they were covered by the layer of earth to hide the remains and the loyalists departed in several groups to seek refuge outside the city. Shortly after that, the Russians seized the bunker and after an investigation of a few days, succeeded in locating the body of Hitler. Um, they said they identified him through the examination of his teeth. And uh, to make it easy, a dental plate had been placed in his mouth. But that's the official story. The unofficial story is prior to the fall of Berlin, Hitler entered a German U-boat with his young wife and a few trusted friends, made their way from northern Germany to safety in a prearranged haven. Now, of course, uh, you may laugh at that. Who would believe he would didn't commit suicide? After all, everybody knew he was crazy, yada, yada, yada. Well, virtually all the, the major works covering the subject of Hitler's death vary in the details. But there's certain things that uh, seem to be fairly uh, consistent. One, the body of Eva Braun was never officially claimed to have been found. And, you know, a lot of the works claim neither of the bodies was found. And there are never any references to the doubles of Hitler that were found. One of them was actually found on the Chancellor grounds. Now, Cornelius Ryan wrote the book Last Battle. And he asked an interesting question. What happened to the remains of Hitler's body if, in fact, it was found? Well, the Russians claimed to have cremated it just outside of Berlin, but they won't say where. Uh, they also claimed never found the body of Eva Braun. They took the position that Eva Braun's body was consumed by fire and identifiable portions scattered and completely destroyed in the bombardment of the government buildings. But how is it possible that when two bodies are put together in a shell hole that one is completely destroyed and the other is intact with a perfect dental plate inserted in the mouth? If you accept the standard historical perspective on the war, then the Hitler's eventual fate's open and shut. But if you dig deeper, you find many mysterious clues and contradictions. References are made to clandestine operations that the, the Nazis were engaged in from 1943 on in preparation for the fall of Germany. They knew in 43 that they were going to lose the war. Careful review the historical accounts of 
Hitler's death shown to be in disagreement a significant detail. Now, a cover-up could very easily have been instituted regarding Hitler's fate after the war. The laundering of certain Nazi files by American authorities after the wars, talked about by David Irving in his book, The Trail of the Fox. In a book entitled, uh, in a chapter in his book entitled The Colonel Calls Old Rommel, he cites a National Archives official in Washington as his source about the laundering of the so-called paperclip files. You have to keep in mind that at the end of the war, a lot of sacred boxes got gored. Now, it's certain that the supposed death of Hitler leaves a lot of unanswered questions. Most of them have never been addressed adequately or in any depth at all. It's almost certain that had Hitler survived hidden in exile, he'd be dead today, of course. And it's certainly not politically expedient to think of this escape outcome as being possible. Given the in-depth nature of a number of studies into this, uh, these questions, it's been determined that the, the outcome is not only possible, but also very likely. And if you sift through the remnants of the Third Reich, you'll learn why that's certainly possible. You know, that country, the popular historical opinion, contrary to popular historical opinion, Hitler realized he was lost as early as 43, as I just said a few moments ago. And a large amount of money was shipped out of Germany to be used by the leaders of the Reich in case Germany did lose the war. And a number of political regimes were established native by the Nazis as potential refuges. Now, Hitler was not out of touch with reality in the last weeks of the war, as so many uh, writers have claimed. And his attitude toward the war and his country was not as dogmatic as many have uh, proclaimed. And it actually welcomed a chance to get away from the responsibilities and the worries. And there was an adequate means to convey him from Germany to uh, any place in the world, frankly. And investigations into his death were wittingly or unwittingly, poorly handled and inconclusive. And two German submarines that left northern Germany during the last days of the war surrendered several months later to Argentinian authorities, which shows they crossed the ocean. And many of Hitler's supporters owned vast amounts of land in South America and would have gladly have hidden him away. And as for the claims that it was impossible to escape Germany as during the collapse, over 150,000 Nazis and Nazi sympathizers escaped Germany after the war, and Hitler could easily have been one of them. <clears throat> Now, to begin an investigation of this sort, you have to go back to the early years of the war and <coughs> excuse me, examine the crucial question in regard to Hitler's view of the war effort. Now, General Alfred Jodel, a man close to Hitler during the war, is quoted in Hitler, the man and the military leader, uh, saying that during the Situation Conference near Flensburg, it was clear to Hitler and himself that when the catastrophe of the winter of 41 and 42 occurred, when the Germans were stopped outside of Moscow, victory could no longer be achieved. They knew it was inevitable. 
And during the course of 1943, nothing happened to restore Hitler's faith in the fact that they could win the war. And 1943 also marked the beginning of a huge operation, according to Ladislas Farago, in which the Nazis uh, smuggled wealth to various South American countries. <coughs> now, in, the summer, in September of 43, Goebbels asked Hitler whether he'd reject negotiations with Churchill. And he responded he wouldn't reject them, but that Churchill took such a hostile position that he didn't really see any possibility in negotiations. So Gimbel's went on to say, no matter how the situation may be now, I submit to you we have to come to terms with one side or the other. Never has the Reich won a two-front war, so we've got to find a way out of this mess. At the beginning of 43, Gimbel's drew up a 40-page memorandum in which he recommended peace negotiations begin with Stalin. He sent it to Hitler, but it was intercepted by Martin Bormann, and Hitler never saw it. Going to SRAM, um, General Jodl's Nuremberg testimony um, had a very interesting quote. And uh, Percy Ernest, Ernst SRAM wrote the book, Hitler, the Man and the Military Leader. And according to the um, statement Jodl made at Nuremberg, the day went off with here, as it said, we should certainly have made it clear to him earlier that the law was lost, and that was a naive thought. Earlier than any other person in the world, Hitler sensed and knew the war was lost. But can you give up a, an empire and a people before they were lost? And to illustrate his point, Sram relates a personal communication he received from Hans Krill, formerly with the Ministry of Armaments and War Production. Quirrell wrote to Sram in 1963. He was president of the conference between Hitler and several important aides, including Speer and Paul Plager, who was a coal commissar. The need for greater steel and coal production was being discussed, and uh, Hitler was very businesslike, very well informed. He knew the production figures per man day from England, America, France, and so on. And Plager conceded that a limited increase in output would be possible if enough Russian prisoners of war were made available that... Uh, but, even so, the desired production figures couldn't be reached. And to uh, Hitler responded, Plager, if we can't produce more coal and more steel, the war is lost. And Hitler was very adamant about this point. Admiral Karl Donitz wrote to Sram in 1960 concerning Hitler's attitude about the impending outcome of the war. He said, May 31st, 1943, I'd reported the collapse of our submarine warfare. When reporting to Hitler on a later occasion, I met Goebbels with him. The topic of submarine warfare came up, and Goebbels stated the collapse of the U-boat war was certainly the most serious defeat we had suffered. And I agreed, since we now had to reckon with an overwhelming development of the enemy power, and Hitler agreed. Another incident showing how Hitler perceived the progress of the war is, uh, was uh, written by uh, John Tolan in the book uh, Adolf Hitler. In February of 43, Hitler dined with Director of Air Armament, Field Marshal Milch. And according to Tolan, after supper, Milch said that he had a long list of recommendations, hoped the Fuhrer wouldn't be offended by his frankness. First, he urged Hitler to abandon the offensive design to retake Kursk and go over to defense. And the Wehrmacht was weak, supplies were scanty, and lines had to be shortened. Hitler responded, you can't persuade me. And the next response was just as radical. He said Hitler should cancel his daily staff discussions and appoint a new chief of the general staff, Manstein, for example. 
Give him control of all fronts, not only one area. All under your command. You'll remain supreme command while he acts as your assistant. Hitler didn't respond to that. For another hour, the field marshal listed equally provoking suggestions and found that he got to the last and most unpalatable one. He said, Stalingrad has been the gravest crisis for those the Reich and the Wehrmacht. You simply must act decisively to Germany out of this war. And I assure you, many agree with me, there's still time. You have to act at once. Well, it was past midnight, and Milch was sweating from exertion and apprehension, and he apologized for annoying the Fuhrer with 20 contradictions, and Hitler glanced at the dots he made on his pad, and he said, you've contradicted me 24 times, not 20. He said, thank you for telling me what you did, because nobody else has given me such a clear picture. According to German warships of the Second World War, by H.T. Linton, Germany lost over a 1,000 submarines in the last two and a half years of the war, after only losing 155 during the first four years of the war. And there's no doubt that Hitler was well aware of this. Well, the conversations at Field Marshal Erwin Rommel's dinner table show how one of his staff generals perceived Hitler. David Irving gave an interesting account. He said, in Rommel's absence, Lieutenant General Spadell took over the table, and his whole conversation resolved around that asshole, the Berghoff, meaning Hitler. And uh, the mood at the table was one of abject defeatism, except when Rommel came in. Um, the attitude changed almost 180, because nobody wanted to uh, air those defeatist remarks in front of Rommel. But by 1944, this defeatist talk was becoming more common. Uh, Irvin proceeds to show that the former Corporal Hitler's military perception exceeded that of his generals, dispelling to some degree the myth Hitler wasn't a good military leader. The uh, intricate and ingenious Allied deception plan, codenamed Fortitude, had already begun. Its objects would have suggested the invasion was due as early as May of 1944. It would hit the Strait of Dover on the 15th Army Sector. And even without Spadell, Rommel would have had little chance of seeing through the deception because Hitler's intelligence services were well infiltrated with anti-Hitler men. There was virtually no air reconnaissance over England because the Luftwaffe was weak by this point. So the Fortitude planners had a pushover. They fed false reports to Hitler's intelligence networks. The invasion was imminent. And long before it was necessary, the British government began stopping or censoring mail and prohibiting even foreign diplomats from leaving. Though one, uh, a Swede, by nationality, was allowed to slip through. Civilian travel was restricted, public buildings were requisitioned at his hospitals, and a premature bombing offensive began against German railroads. Non-existent American forces were moved into southeastern England, facing uh, Salma's 15th Army. They uh, did a lot of faking of radio traffic and reports to German agents. Only Hitler realized something was wrong. April 6th, he said to Jodl the whole way that the British are serving all this up to it looks phony. Latest news about the restrictions are ordering their security clamped down and so you don't normally go in for all that if you're really up to something. I think this whole thing is going to turn out to be a charade. When he was informed of the troop movements, detected a Toward uh, southeast England, he said, well, I'll make such a, such a song and dance out of it. We wouldn't, I guarantee you. They don't need to either. They're perfectly well marshaled their forces over there in the southeast and load them on board and ship them over here. 
We have no real way of finding out what they're up to. A few minutes later, Hitler announced, I'm in favor of pushing all our forces here, and he pointed to Normandy. So according to SRAM, it would be a mistake to belittle Hitler as a military strategist. Even some of his critics had to admire his early strategies. SRAM also notes that Hitler's awareness of the military situation was very good. He stated when General Kamhuber remarked at his briefing at the end of um, March of 45, the war was lost. Hitler uh, basically said, I know that myself. After the invasion of Normandy and the failure of the German army to beat back the invading forces in the west and the east, it was clear to Hitler only a miracle could save Germany from defeat. And when the Germany's new superweapons failed to produce the desired results, the end was clear to Hitler beyond a shadow of a doubt. And as I said earlier, even in 1943, he anticipated defeat. So, Germany's military defeat didn't come as a surprise to Hitler. In reviewing the German submarine losses, we see the drastic increase from 42 to 43. In the following year, losses were even greater. And he was very familiar with the losses. Handwriting clear was on the wall. The, um... Now, one of his main objectives was the securing of colonies abroad. They were interested in Africa, the Far East and South America, and other remote regions of the world. And like the British and the French and other European nations, the Germans sought fertile colonies. And Hermann Rochnung's The Voice of Destruction, the author gives a rare glimpse of uh, Hitler's interest in South America. In his chapter at the dinner table under the subtitle Hitler's Foot in Latin America, a picture begins to emerge. According to Rosening, it was on this uh, Chancellor Terrace that after dinner one evening in the early summer of 33, I was president of the conversation that was most revealing of Hitler's political opinions about America and showed how far-reaching his plans were and how mistaken was the belief that the National Socialism had political aims only in the east and southeast of Europe. The... Um, Hitler stated several times, we'll create a new Germany in Brazil. We'll find everything we need there. And then he outlined all that a hard work and energetic government could do to create order. He said, besides, we have a right to, to this continent. The Fugers and the Welsers had possessions there. We've got to repair what our German disunity has destroyed. and we have to see to it. It's no longer true. We've lost all that we once occupied. Time has passed for us to give place to Spain and Portugal and be everywhere at a disadvantage. So he had plans to establish a uh, dominion in South America. Um, in 1943, uh, Keep in mind, after 33, when this conversation happened, he had 12 years to implement his plans for South America. And with the war going badly from 43 on, it was a logical step to secure a safe retreat abroad. And uh, even Donitz talked about the Shangri-La that had been created by the German Navy for Hitler to retreat to. 
And in 43, an operation was established that involved the transporting of millions of dollars worth of treasure to South America. It was a large and involved plan that called with the cooperation of many branches of the Nazi government. It was an extremely secret maneuver requiring close coordination. The code name was Operation Land of Fire. During the Nazi regime, vast amounts of money and valuables were confiscated from victims of the regime. From 43 on, much of this treasure was housed in the Reichsbank in Berlin, consisting mainly of paper currency, gold bars, silver, and jewelry of all kinds. That's according to uh, Ladislas uh, Farago's book, Aftermath, was published in 1974. Till June of 44, Farago uh, said such valuables went into armored trucks across Germany and France to Spanish ports where they were picked up by U-boats. And the operation in Spain was headed by General Wilhelm Foppel, former ambassador and head of Latin America Institute. And two of Foppel's aides were former spies who were caught and asked by the Argentinian government, Captain Dietrich Niebuhr and Gottfried Sandstern. Going to Fargo after D-Day in 44, the overland routes to Spain became blocked. Bormann issued orders to continue action Fuhrerland by air. Clandestine traffic didn't escape the attention of either the Allies or the Argentinian authorities. The virtually complete record of this operation, which is enormously important because it laid the foundations for the economic structure of Bormann's post-war worlds, preserved not only in the archives of Coordination Federal in Buenos Aires, but also in the files of the FBI and the British Admiralty. In the British division, naval intelligence assumed the U-boats engaged in this traffic or on regular operational cruises using hidden bases in Argentina to refuel, but the Argentinian authorities knew better. Argentinian naval intelligence agents submitted a report on the land to fire operation in April of 45, naming two of its principals. According to Farago, they were Ludwig Frode, described as an agent of the Third Reich and the well-known uh, radio and stage actress Maria Eva Duarte Ibergion. Intelligence uh, source had ascertained that Frode had made extensive deposits of various banks in the name of the actress, later to become Eva Perón. The intelligence source was also told by Frode that a U-boat of Admiral Donitz's submarine fleet had arrived 150 miles south of Buenos Aires in February 45, bearing uh, shipment number 1744 to Argentina. According to Nisforo Erlikon, uh, in a report to the Navy Ministry, that shipment consisted of an unspecified number of crates and bags containing a treasure designed to help rebuild the Nazi Empire. And subsequent investigation revealed the treasure was deposited in four banks under the name of Senorita Duarte, who became Perón. Those banks included the Banco Alemán, the Banco Alemán Translantico, the Banco Germanico, and the Banco Tornquist. Well, the extent of the Operation Land of Fire, um, as indicated by Farago, uh, in another facet of the operation, Freud asked uh, General Friedrich Wolf, who had become Ministry of Naval Attaché in 43, to find secluded spots on the, the Argentine coastline where U-boats could berth and unload. So Wolf uh, commissioned uh, Otto Albert Seidlitz, manager of the Metropo Travel Bureau, to reconnoiter the coast from Puerto Norte all the way to Cabo San Diego, 1,500 miles away. Seidlitz's point of departure in his search was a number of big estates along the Atlantic owned by Germans, among them a friend of General Wolf's who owned a large ranch near 
Mardisur, which became the first Snurg harbor of the U-boats on these secret missions. Within months, Sidlitz created a network of hidden bases and what became an elaborate maritime organization servicing all that traffic. And aside from the clandestine ports dotting the coast from San Clemente down to Patagonia, Fred also established two radio stations at Tandil and Bella Vista to guide the U-boats to their approach. Basically, the upshot of all this was that um, at the end of the war, rather than being in total disarray, the Germans were fully prepared for the next phase which was uh, escape and reorganization of South America. Borman himself, who was supposedly killed in escaping from Berlin, actually arrived in Buenos Aires in 1948. And he learned the Peron government wasn't planning to allow the Nazis to keep all the treasure been funneled by them to the Argentinian banks. According to Father Guido Esparza's report and other cooperating documents, Bormann, who was deputy Führer, received one quarter of, of um, the valuables. And according to Farago, Martin Bormann's sole mover behind all this accumulation and smuggling of wealth was intending the treasure for his own personal use. Now, common sense would dictate an operation this large would be impossible for him to pull off under Hitler's nose, so certainly Hitler was very much involved. Planning this scope required the services of Himmler's SS, Goring's Air Force, Donitz's Navy, and Donitz and Himmler were two of Hitler's most loyal followers. They would not have gone behind his back and done something he didn't approve. And there's good evidence that Albert Speer knew of this operation, not to mention all the low echelons of command. Now, if Operation Land to Fire was just a something Bormann was doing for his own benefit. Without Hitler's knowledge, somebody would have told Hitler. And as loyal as Hitler's circle of top leaders were, Bormann could never have pulled off such a maneuver by himself. He had wound up in a concentration camp. Right up until the end, he, Hitler was the commander, the supreme commander of the armed forces, and Donuts, as naval commander, wouldn't have allowed Bormann to encroach on his sphere of activity. Uh, Hitler kept close tabs on his submarines, would have missed any not in their appointed places at sea. And it's logical that Hitler was fully aware of all the plans uh, underway. And given the highly competitive nature of the political rivalry in the Nazi hierarchy, if the land of fire operations were merely a Bormann scheme, some enterprising underling would have blown it wide open to Hitler as a means of gaining favor and self-advancement. Now, Bormann himself was thoroughly dedicated to Hitler and was subservient to Hitler's every whim and wish. And it's well known how Hitler dealt with traitors. He did it brutally and sadistically. So Bormann would not have risked uh, getting on the wrong side of Hitler. And the, uh, the fact that Hitler was well aware of this operation and in fact the instigator goes a long way with the premise that he realized the war was lost. Now, in such a scenario, it would have been necessary to insulate Hitler from the plot in order to provide cover for his escape and keep demoralization from spreading. In fact, the picture of Hitler painted by the Allied propagandists of a complete raving madman, uh, stubborn to the end, was in fact utilized by the Nazis to 
promote the idea that Hitler committed suicide in Berlin. The Nazis used the Allied propaganda. Now, according to Farago, his book that he wrote around the scenario of a Borman escape, he verified very well with documented evidence. He said that 150,000 Nazis escaped the various sanctuaries, some with the help of Allied agents, I might add, and $800 million worth of treasures removed from Germany. And he prepared his material from the point of view that um, he never considered Hitler may have been one of the escaped Germans. <coughs> and there are two reasons why this may well, he may have well taken this position. The resistance on the part of the general public to consider such a conspiracy as historical fact and the resistance of the large publishers to uh, print major works on this theme. But as uh, well aware as Ladislas Fergo was of the inter uh, machinations within the Nazi circle, it's hard to believe he didn't realize more than he says about operations like Land of Fire, Paperclip, and Double X, and Allied Intelligence Group uh, that he discussed in some uh, detail in the Game of Foxes. They infiltrated the Nazis and took over their defense industries after the war. Now, the idea of a Hitler's suicide was maybe not as attractive to the Allies as would be his capture or his execution, but it was still desirable and valuable, for it seemed as if he were renouncing his whole philosophy as well as his very life. And the psychological impact was the same, if not greater than being captured. And the Allies were also spared a very messy, expensive trial and execution. So from that point of view, a dead Hitler was better than a living Hitler. And although some allied leaders believed Hitler might have escaped, it was simply preferable for them to pretend he was dead. In any event, fate denied Hitler's enemies her retribution against him personally. Um, interestingly enough, there were miles and miles of deeply buried tunnels around the Reich Chancellor, Hitler supposedly died. It took 40 years to destroy the entire tunnel complex. Now, the exact method of Hitler's escape is only guesswork. We don't know for sure, but examining the facts we do know, there are certain possibilities. Number one, there were two U-boats that were active months after the war. Until they finally surrendered in Argentina several months after the war ended. And Hitler's pilot, Otto Scorzini, was missing after the war ended and could very well have flown Hitler to neutral Spain. There was also a female pilot who was known to have landed and took off from one of the main thoroughfares in uh, Berlin uh, right before the end. Captain Heinz Schaefer of the U-977, one of the suspect submarines, tells the tale of the voyage of his ship in his book, U-Boat 977. It, he published it in 1952, and it was uh, excerpted by the editor's side evening post in their collection. They state the average life of a U-boat at that time was about 40 days. But as it turned out, the U-977 and her crew were destined to beat the averages. It was a big a secret cruise toward freedom, terrible suffering, and an underwater voyage longer than any in naval annals. 
And at the end, it'd be a fantastic accusation. It's been said we took Adolf Hitler aboard the U-977 and delivered him to a hideaway. Well, according to Schaefer, this mysterious voyage began late in April 1945 from the base in Kiel. He said, we knew Germany was being defeated. Air, Allied air raids were hitting the base daily, and anti-aircraft weapons were non-existent at that point. During one of the, the air raids, his craft slid out the harbor through a cataract of falling bombs. Allied planes were overhead. Munitions stores were being destroyed with a rain of fire and death. Another submarine was following him, but it took a hit and sank. He recounts he was forced out of the base before provisions could be secured, so he put into a Danish port for stores of food. He took all he could get. He said he planned to refuel at Christensen in Norway if we could squeeze past the Allied lookouts. He said uh, more than half of our U-boats were lost on this run, which raised the question, was he talking about other U-boats that were with him, or was he speaking of past voyages? Well, on the April 26th, they put in a Christiansen. Other U-boats arrived on the 27th. Schaefer said he was aware the Russians were fighting in the streets of Berlin, but that Admiral Donitz had broadcast that there'd be no capitulation on Germany's part. Schaefer said the flotilla commander in Norway made a farewell speech when he said, fight on to the very end, Germany will never surrender. So ask yourself this, why did all these submarines converge into a flotilla at the Norway base? Why did they need a general commander unless the flotilla was extensive and planned in advance? And who was the mysterious flotilla commander who urged the fight to the end? If it was Donitz, it would seem strange for him to be in Norway at this critical time of the war. Could that flotilla commander be none other than Adolf Hitler himself? According to Schaefer, Hitler's death was announced on the first day of May, but our battle waters still stood unchanged. At this point, he said his ship was to engage the Allied shipping around Southampton and that serious problems with his periscope prevented this as visions of surfing vessels was impossible. After a few days, his junior watchkeeper brought a message to him that read, uh, To all men of the submarine service, for five years you fought valiantly on the seven seas. You can look back with pride on what you've achieved. Um, you've made history, but in spite of all you've endured, the worst still lies ahead, because tomorrow we surrender. From tomorrow on, you'll take all your orders from the Allied command. Well, Schaefer said he didn't receive the signature to this message and believed it was an enemy trap. He gave orders to shut down the radio receivers. It was no longer reflecting the true views of our leaders. And much of what followed in his story is hard to conceive as coming from a war commander in Nazi Germany. They considered scuttling the ship and talked about landing his men in Norway to return to their families. A vote was taken. Thirty men were voted for going to South America, two for Spain, but changed their mind. Sixteen men were landed in Norway to return home. And the ship eventually made a... uh, left on the Norwegian coast and made a dash for freedom. Well, this dash started with harm morale, according to Schaefer. I'm sure they could sail past the British Isles into the Atlantic, but they proceeded cautiously. And although the war was over, he thought the British would be patrolling to prevent the possible escape of a Nazi bigwig. 
After 18 days of submerged sailing, morale was sagging as a result of foul food, water, and air, and Schaefer said iron nerve was the first essential in this darkened cage. You know, the phrase uh, iron nerve, of course, was a favorite of Hitler's. And Schaefer's mention of an iron cage sounds very much like a subtle reference to the prophecy of Nostradamus made in the 15th century regarding Hitler. He said a greater part of the camp will be against Hitler. It'll be the it will have the great man carried in an iron cage when the German child watches the Rhine. Well, after cruising for two months, Schaefer surrendered to the Argentine officials. He was taken into custody and brought to Washington, D.C. to be questioned about his mission. And he was grilled extensively as to his whereabouts during the previous several months. And he was repeatedly questioned about Hitler, where he was, whether Schaefer helped him escape. It shows that Americans are very suspicious about Hitler's supposed suicide in Berlin. Well, when this interrogation was included, hidden microphones turned up uh, no conclusive evidence. Schaefer was sent to London for the British to try to break him. Once again, nothing can be proved about his part in the Hitler escape. After all of this effort to learn about Hitler's whereabouts, the Allies finally released Schaefer. He settled in Argentina where he says he found peace, quiet, and respect for all who fought in the war. And Schaefer's story, of course, was exciting and worth reading in its entirety, but uh, it is doubtful he's telling the whole truth. Much of it seems unlikely. Looking at the facts, we know U-77 left Kiel, Germany. In late April, arrived in Christensen, Norway, April 26th. Departed from there on May 4th and surrendered to Argentinian authorities August 17th, three months after the war was over. So where was the submarine for three months? The U-530 surrendered to Argentina several weeks before the U-977. Its captain was also interrogated as to Hitler's whereabouts. Uh, Schaefer does say his submarine passed close to Spain, so several passengers could have been taken on board there. Records of the U-977 and the U-530 tell us all we can say about their voyages, and of course, they could certainly have been altered. But if Hitler wanted to escape undetected, submarines would have been a feasible method of escape. And that might well be the uh, the method he chose. Well, on that note, we come to the end of today's show. Tomorrow we'll talk about uh, Otto Scorzini and what he may well have done. Until then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.